We're looking at Psalm 13 this morning, and before we look at it in detail, let's observe several things. First of all, at Psalm 13, I hope you have a Bible available, you'll be looking at it, there is a superscription or a heading before this psalm that says two things. We learn two things from it. Uh, we learn who wrote the psalms, that is, according to the superscription, that's David, and to whom it was written, the chief musician. Now, it has been stated a couple of times, I did it in the introduction, Eddie has done it since, that superscriptions above the psalm are not inspired, but they're ancient. And uh, so they don't always have to be counted on as being absolute. But, but because they are so old, tradition has accepted them as being fairly accurate. And uh, we keep that in mind. We know that David composed a number of psalms, not all of them, but there are a number that are attributed to him and that we see in those psalms that he is obviously the writer of those psalms. In regard to the chief musician, if you note in your Bible, Psalm 11, 12, 13, and 14 all have the psalm being directed to the chief musician. Um, perhaps this was the leader or a leader of uh, singing groups, choirs, we might call them, choruses, or even musicians who were playing instruments. First Chronicles 16, verse 7 well, first of all, First Chronicles 6.33 mentions Heman, the singer, H-E-M-A-N, Heman, the singer. And First Chronicles 6, and this is during David's time, First Chronicles 16.7 and 25 verse 6 mention both Heman and Asaph as being a part of musical groups. Now, what... What that really means to us is this. Don't miss the obvious meaning. This psalm was apparently meant to be sung. In other words, it was a just a psalm, as can be called a song. This was a singing psalm. This was one that wasn't just to be read, but perhaps to be performed, to be sung. We talked, or Eddie talked last week about the fact that there are psalms that we call psalms of ascent. And those psalms were typically pictured to be psalms that would be sung on the way to Jerusalem as people were going up. Biblically and geographically, Jerusalem is a higher point than many of the surrounding areas. And so as people were traveling from their homes to the festivals, to the feast, as they were going up to Jerusalem, they were singing some of those songs. This, this particular song would have been sung at perhaps a different time. And I'll get to that in just a little bit. Now, if, if they were to be sung, then obviously that indicates that others could associate with what David wrote. In other words, what I'm trying to say is David just didn't just write this for himself. This is not just David. This is a wider application, and you and I, as we read it, we see it applies to us too. 
If Psalm 12 and 13 were written close to the same time, I don't have evidence of that, but they're put together. If they were written close to the same time, then I think what we would take from that is that David's concerns are intensifying. Because in Psalm 12, as you notice at the beginning of the psalm, David sees the godly man disappearing. Notice, help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. David sees a trend that is not good, and that is the godly man, the man who trusts God and does God's will. He's disappearing somehow. And then in verse 2 and 8 of Psalm 12, wickedness correspondingly is increasing. Notice, they speak idly, everyone with his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. And then verse 8, the wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. There, there really is no such thing as a neutral attitude in life. You're either good or bad. <laughs> You're good or bad. And when you stop being good, there's only one direction you can go. You don't go to neutral. When you stop being good, you go to bad. And there's a corresponding relationship between the, the righteous man seeking and the wicked increasing. When you stop being righteous, you become unrighteous. Now, Psalm 13 goes further than that. Because in Psalm 13, David feels abandoned. And, and, and we're going to get more to that uh, soon, but, but not right now. Now, some think, some would find this difficult to swallow. Because they might not like this. David is a hero. He's a great man. He is, he is in many cases pictured to be a godly man. He is, he is the ruler from which all rulers seemingly are judged. Remember how many times in your Old Testament reading you see that a man was either not like David or was like David. He's the standard. He should have always been strong, shouldn't he? He should have never had any doubts. He should have never been depressed. And, and even if he should have those doubts and concerns and despair, he should have kept it to himself, shouldn't he? Sure shouldn't have put it out there. Because if he puts it out there, somebody's going to say, mm, he's weak. Oh, I knew that was all a front on David's part. He, he, he's not as good as he says he is. Look, he has doubts. He has concerns. What we see, I believe, and I'm going to expound on this later if possible. I think we see the honesty of David. David is not a man who hides things. Now, you know, among biblical characters... We don't always get to make judgments much about personalities. In other words, what's this guy really like? We don't get to see that often. But you do with David, don't you? Wouldn't you say from what you read about David and from David that he's a man who can hit the heights 
and hit the depths. He's a man, and I, please forgive me if you're an artist, but he's got an artist temperament, doesn't he? And typically, sometimes we think people who are more artistic are really creative, and they can get to a high level, and boy, they can get down in the dumps because their emotions go all over the place. And I believe David shows himself to be that kind of person. He is a man of great emotion. And when you read the Psalms, all those emotions come out. He didn't hide any of them. He is intense in his love for God, and he is sometimes struggling. Well, this is a psalm of transition, and we're glad. I, I wouldn't appreciate this psalm the way I do if it was a psalm that went like this. The transition is like this, from the depths to the heights. Someone has said, what begins in despair ends in delight. And that's the key, isn't it? Is, is that we don't stay in despair, that we don't let despair ruin us, but that we move from that despair to a better place in our lives. Now, let me read Psalm 13. And you, if you'll follow along, I'm reading from the New King James Version, and I don't, this is just six verses. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed against him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Beautiful psalm. Now, on the outline that you have, which incidentally you'll notice I'm not following very well and, and didn't intend to. <laughs> that's, a, that's a preacher's prerogative, okay. Um, a possibility of the circumstances connected to this psalm is on your outline. And, and I don't discount that at all. In fact, I, I think it's probably correct. This seems... Uh, in the opinion of many people, commentators and others, to have been written maybe during that difficult time when David is running from Saul. And David hadn't done anything wrong, but Saul is jealous. And Saul sees David as a threat, and Saul determines what? I'm going to kill him. That's the only way I can get rid of him is kill him. Because if these women are singing, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousand, what does he have more than what? My kingdom. What does he need? What else will he get? Me. He'll get what I am and I'll be out and I've got to get rid of him. More than one dictator has taken that same approach. You eliminate the opposition. And so if that is the case then it certainly is a low point in David's life. But let me assure you of this, and I, I believe this is legitimate. 
It's not the only low point in his life. It really isn't. Don't you think that when he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and had been approached by Nathan the prophet and rebuked and had to face that sin, not only what he had done with Bathsheba, but what he had done to her husband. Don't you think that was a low point in David's life? He knew he was wrong. He, he felt so guilty. Psalm 51, I think, addresses that. But also think of this. Because of what he did, God told him, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have trouble. Now, God will forgive our sins, but sometimes God says, you have to accept the consequences of your sin. Look, you murder somebody and God can forgive you for murdering them, but that doesn't mean you won't be executed. Okay? And so it's foolish to say, well, if God forgives, I shouldn't have to have any consequences. Yeah, look, you, you, you drink alcohol heavily for 50 years and you get cirrhosis of the liver. Can God forgive you of that? Yes, but is he going to take away the cirrhosis? Maybe not. You have to live with the consequences of what we do. What about Absalom? Don't you think that was a low point in David's life when your own son rebels against you? When your son would get up on the rooftop, yeah, maybe it was in a tent, but everybody knew what was going on in the tent, right? Having sex with David's concubines. To, to shame his father. A son shaming his father. Don't you think that was a low point in David's life? And so David doesn't just have one low point in life. He has a number of them. You and I don't just have one low point in life generally, do we? Death of a, a close relative or loved one, that's a low point sometimes for us. Losing a job, that's a low point. Losing our health, that's a low point. We have lots of low points in our life. And so I think we can certainly relate to this. I want to just take the time, please, for just a moment to, to go back to 1 Samuel 19. Because I want to add one other element to this, if we could. 1 Samuel 19. I'm not going to go through all of this. Saul is already trying to kill David. David knows he's got to get away. If you look at 1 Samuel 19 and verse 18. 1 Samuel 19, 18. So David fled and escaped, notice this, and went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Naoth. Now why do I mention that? Wasn't Samuel the one who had come to Jesse's house and seen those sons before David and said, don't you have somebody else? Yes, here he is. And didn't Samuel anoint him? You know what that anointing meant. Here's the guy that's going to be king. And, and, and don't you think that when David fled from this terrible situation and got together with Samuel and told him everything that had happened, do you think Samuel just stood there and said, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm? Do you think maybe that Samuel could have told him, David, God has anointed you to be his king. You're not going to die. You're going to be king. I don't mean to read too much into it. I believe personally. You don't have to believe this. You could be wrong. 
I believe personally that David was told by Samuel, keep your chin up. Yeah, this looks bad. But Samuel knew because God had told him, this is the man. And David had heard that and Samuel likely assured him. Now, why do I say that? Because it doesn't always help. It doesn't always help. We would like to think when somebody's down in the dumps and we say, hey, don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. And they just say, oh, great. Now I don't have any more concerns. It doesn't always work that way with me. I bet it doesn't work that way with you. We ought to believe the best. But sometimes we don't. Okay, David is struggling. Let's look at his despair. Verses 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul? How, having sorrow in my heart daily, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? If that how long is repeated four times in two verses, David is feeling it intently. And there is an intense desire for deliverance. How long? But it also makes us think something else, and that is whatever David is struggling with has been going on for some time. How long? How long do I have to go through this? You know, all difficulties that you and I face in life may be difficult to deal with. That's why they're difficulties. But the longer they last, the more we wilt under them. It's been going on for a long time. This is not something that just happened and I got over it in one day or a week. This has been going on and on. And the longer it goes on, the more our minds become weighed down and we begin to say, how long is this going to happen? You know, if David had known how long he had to endure running from Saul, it would have helped him greatly. Because he would have said, well, if I... If I just go one more year, it'll all be over. Or two years, and it'll be over. David didn't know that. And, and we don't know on many of those cases of our difficulties and the uncertainty of how long it goes is going to add to the stress. If we were able to see when a difficulty would end, whether it's sickness or family trouble or financial struggles, if we were able to see when it would all be over, it would be fairly easier, not easy, easier to get through. But when we don't see it, it can be a real challenge. The question is, can we be positive about it, or will we sink to some negative? Will we slip into despair? And, and for many of us, Maybe not everybody, many of us. The question is, or the, the situation is, am I going to begin questioning God? Am, am I going to begin in my difficulty, and I feel like this is not getting over, and I'm still having to deal with it, am I going to get to the point where I begin to consider all the possibilities, and I say, it's your fault. It's your fault. Well, verse 1 shows that David feels forgotten. 
But let me know this. Just because he feels that way doesn't make it true. On another occasion in Psalm 142, and I'm going to go, I doubt I'm going to go. I'm going to try to go back to this. But Psalm 142, if you look at verse 3, when my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path. In the way in which I walk, they have secretly set a snare for me. But if you look at verse 5, I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry. Well, in Psalm 142, also attributed to David, he acknowledges being overwhelmed, but he also acknowledges that God really was aware of what was going on. He doesn't feel quite that way here, at least not at the beginning of all this ordeal. Now, years later, God had a message for his people who thought God had forgotten them. And again, in your Bible, if you'll turn to Isaiah for just a moment, please. Isaiah 49. This is such a great passage. Isaiah 49, I'm not going to read a lot of it, but verse 14, Isaiah 49, 14. But Zion said, that represents Judaism, Jerusalem, but Judaism really. Zion said, and incidentally, that that is an example of an inanimate object speaking. That's, That's a literary device. Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me and my and my Lord has forgotten me. But look at God's response. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. God has not forgotten, he tells his people. Now, incidentally... The interesting thing about this is that the Jews were in a state of rebellion against God and living in disobedience to him, and they were complaining when they were suffering. Why has God forgotten us? God said, I haven't forgotten you. But what they were expecting from God was unreasonable. I'll talk about this later. It was unreasonable because they were saying, In essence, we can live any way we want, but God ought to still be blessing us. And God said, I haven't forgotten you. But boy, you read through Isaiah and and God's message to them is you're going to suffer for your disobedience. God did not forget David, but David felt like it. Now let's talk about feelings for a minute. Men, please don't stop listening. We have to be careful with feelings. Here's why. They sometimes create their own reality. David felt like God had forgotten him. He felt like God was hiding from him, that he was withholding his blessings. That was how he felt, but was it a fact? I say no, it wasn't a fact. It was a feeling, but not a fact. Now, let's, let's try to get a proper balance here. Feelings can be helpful. God made us to have feelings. 
That's why we can love and we can care for others and we can have concern. We can express sorrow and feel sorrow. Uh, we, we can be angry. God gave us those, and they are blessings to us, but some people are ruled by their feelings. Can feelings always be trusted? No. And they may be honest feelings. I don't think David was dishonest in what he felt, but he was wrong. You remember when Jacob's sons came back from Egypt? They had made that trip there, and unbeknownst to them, their brother was in a place of authority, not a slave. And, and David, I mean, and Joseph, Joseph makes this condition. Yeah, they can go back home, but they have to leave Simeon or Simon. They have to leave him. And, and the brothers go home, and what's Jacob's reaction? Well, look at Genesis 42. Look at Genesis 42. What does Jacob think about all of this? Verse 36. And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Was he no more? <laughs> no, he, he was still there. Now, Jacob had grieved for Joseph as if he were dead. He was not dead. He says, Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin. And then notice what he says. This is the real point. All these things are against me. Were they? He felt like they were. But what he didn't know is that God was working something out. And later, Joseph would remind his brothers, well, you sold me into, into slavery by your will, but God had different plans. God put me here so I could save you. Well, Jacob felt like everything was against him, but it really wasn't. You wonder if David is... I may not like this. Was David thinking too much? We think a lot of times when we have problems or difficulties, I've got to think this out. Well, listen what jo Joseph, uh, what David says uh, here. He says in verse 2, How long, no, verse 2, How long shall I take counsel in my soul? How long do I have to work through all of this in my mind until I come to the correct conclusion? You know, th there are times when we keep focusing on problems, and the more we focus on them, the worse they get. They don't get better. They get worse. First Peter 5, verse 7 gives us a good remedy, doesn't it? Casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. And, and David was smart enough, and we're going to see this in just a moment. David was smart enough to know that he couldn't go on all of his life simply thinking he's got the answer or can find the answer. Now, David's depression, if you want to call it that, was also intensified by seeing his enemy, and he doesn't name that enemy, exalted over him. Maybe that's Saul. People may be saying in David's mind, well, David can't be right because he's running. 
And, and, and if he was really the man he should have been, he wouldn't be hiding out and running from Saul. And so that's when verses 3 and 4 turn from that depression, that feeling of rejection on his part to supplication. Look at 3 and 4. Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed against him. Let those, lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. You see, after struggling with all of this, David turns to God. And that's what he needed to do. Consider and hear me is a prayer. And, and David is not asking two different things. Remember, we've talked about parallelism. When David says, consider, and he says here, he's saying the same thing. Not saying two things, he's saying the same thing twice. And, and he knows that this is where the help really has to come from. And that's a great step out of the depths. When we understand it's not in me, i got to turn to someone who can really help me, and that's God. Consider and help me. What David doesn't do is what some people have done. He doesn't give up on God. See, a lot of people who go through long-time, long-term struggles finally reach the point they say, I just give up on God. He's not going to help me. I give up on him. Well, you know what happens when you do that? You get better? No. David struggled with how long he'd been dealing with this thing, but then he turns to God, which is the right place to turn, and he goes to him for help. And he says to God, enlighten my eyes. You see, his vision had been clouded by his problems, and it often does cloud. Sometimes problems so occupy our thinking that that's all we see are our problems. I, I've, told, <laughs> I've told this a lot of times, shouldn't tell it again, but some of you are forgetful. And I'm forgetful when I tell things a lot of times. First place I preached, there was an older woman, and one Sunday morning she came out and I said, how are you doing? Boy, she told me. For about 30 minutes she told me how she was doing and it wasn't good. I never said that to that woman again. I always just said, glad to see you. <laughs> because, you know, sometimes you get with somebody and the very first thing and the middle thing and the last thing they want to do is tell you, here's all my problems. You say, wow, that ought to be enough for you. You don't have to throw them on me too. Now, David really is asking to see things the way God sees them. If you take this cloud away from my eyes and enlighten them, I will be able to understand what you know. And I thought about that, brethren and sisters. Don't we need to pray at times, Lord, open my eyes that I may see as I should Help me to see the way it really is. Help me to see the way you see. I don't, I don't, I don't know that I've prayed that, and I should have, and we should. 
Look at Ephesians 1. We're going to the New Testament. Look at Ephesians 1. Beginning, and I could read more than this, but beginning verse 15. Therefore I also, Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to, your, to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Look, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory, of the glory of his, of his inheritance in the saints. You think maybe Paul thinking about that psalm and eyes being enlightened to understand through the use through the Holy Spirit would use the, that same analogy for brethren in his day. Now, incidentally, I also add this. David's not asking for a miracle. What he's asking for is clear understanding. That doesn't take a miracle. It does take a change of focus of our minds. Again, to pray to God, help me to see as you see. Help me to understand as you understand. In that same passage there, verse 6, David didn't want to die. None of us really do. At least not at that point in his life he didn't want to die. And he didn't want his enemies to triumph over him. And I want to mention a personal opinion again. I'll try to note that with you. I doubt this was done for purely selfish reasons. If I know David as I think I know him, to defeat, to be defeated by his enemies would mean that God's chosen... The one God chose was defeated, therefore would reflect on God. I truly believe that David didn't want to fail because someone might get the impression that God had failed. And so when David says, don't let my enemies triumph over me, he's not just saying, and Lord, I want to be victorious. He's saying, I want to be victorious for your sake. So that people will know God's chosen one has been accepted and he will be protected. Quickly, the, the third set. Notice these are in sets of two, five, and six. Now becomes David's declaration. He has had supplication. He's prayed. Now he's going to make a declaration. I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Here we see the real transition from, from the depths to a better understanding and now to victory. After praying, David's confident. Notice, if you will, the past tense, I have trusted at some point, instead of struggling with, why are you not doing this? David said, I trust it. And because he trusted in God's mercy, and he should have because he had seen it over and over, because he had trusted in God's mercy, now he can look forward. I shall rejoice. I have trusted. I shall rejoice in your salvation. Whether that means salvation from this particular problem or more than that, your eternal salvation, you will save me. 
His feelings are different now. Now they're accurate. <laughs> and he knows what God will provide. And now David can sing. I never heard David sing, but boy, I bet he could sing. I, I just, I hope you and I get to hear him sing in heaven. The singing comes from a glad heart. It's, it's often hard to sing when we're down and depressed. But boy, when you come through the valley and you get on the high plains, you really that's when you can sing. And it is a heart that recognizes God's bounty. Oh God, you have been so good to us. Count your many blessings. Name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. That's the 13th Psalm. Let me mention a couple of things quickly. Observation. Don't just look at these Psalms in their historical context. Now that's important. We have to understand what David was dealing with. That's appropriate. But the real thing is, how does this benefit me? Think about it. If it benefited David, can it benefit you in the same way? Now, I'm going to go back to something I mentioned earlier. How could David address God the way he did? How long? How long? How long? Why are you hiding your face from me? I've already mentioned his honesty, but how about this? His humanity. Some of we forget that these great heroes of the Bible are still human beings. And, and, and as human beings, they're subject to the same struggles that all human beings are struggling with. But doesn't this also, I think, speak to David's relationship with God? You see, to David, God is not a distant deity. He believes God hears him. He believes that God can help him. And that God has helped him. And his closeness to God, although a blessing, also may have intensified his confusion. Oh, God's been so good to me. Now, why am I going through this? We don't have time to look at them, but I want you to make a little notation, if you will, in your lesson sheet. Psalm 22 and Psalm 142, because those are both what we would call how long psalms. Psalm 142, I read a couple of verses from, but read that whole thing. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. It's called that. Because it's about, it has a foregleam of the one who would die for us, Jesus. You remember Jesus on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The humanity of Jesus is seen on the cross as well as his deity. Now, do we expect God to help us while we're living in disobedience? I hope not. Some people do. Because to, to some people, their relationship to God is like a one-way street. You come to me, God, I don't have to come to you. You travel, you send the blessings this way, and I don't have to do anything for you. That's your business, is to love me and to bless me and to help me in all my struggles, 
and it doesn't make any difference what I do. That's baloney. Not even fresh baloney. Has to be a two-way street. Yes, God blesses us. He'll bless us more than we do for Him. But God blesses, and we need to reciprocate by obedience and trust and faith in God. And that's the wonderful relationship that a Christian can have, that it's a two-way street, not a one-way street. And then let me mention this. More reflections on God's mercy rather than our difficulties would help all of us. You know, there are a lot of things we can't control, friends. But there are a lot of things we can control, and one is the way we think. Sometimes people say, I can't help the way I think. Oh, yes, you can. Not unless your mind is just incapable of doing the right thing. We control the way we think. So how do we think? And, and I know I've said this maybe ad nauseum. I don't mean to be too repetitive on it, but it is my firm belief that if you fix your mind on the fact that God is good, only good, never bad, then you're not going to have as many problems with your difficulties because you're not going to try to fix blame on God. You're not going to say God is at fault because you know he's not. Now, could he be testing us? Yes. He's not tempting us, but he could be testing us. But God's never going to do anything evil against you. God is only going to help you when you respond to him. And, and, and let's make sure that our thinking is correct, that, that we think daily about the mercies of God and how kind God has been, how generous he's been to forgive us of our sins. If that occupies your mind most of the time, you don't have much time to think about all your problems. 